Please take out your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Ephesians. Hey, believe it or not, we're going to start in Ephesians 6. Ephesians, chapter 6, beginning at verse 15, and actually ending at verse 15. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I think this was the hardest one to make work in this scenario. Standing and holding your ground in battle is everything. To the Roman soldier it was life and death. Because if you went down, you were probably going to die. If you fell down or fell back, you were at the very least easy prey. So whether you're on slippery terrain, whether you're on up and down hill terrain, whether you're crossing rugged terrain, or the terrain is muddy and bloody, the battlefield with the enemy, you need to dig in and you need to be able to stand your ground. Verses 11 through 13. So in order to do that, it's my understanding that Roman soldiers in preparation and anticipation of the battles that were sure to come, because as we said, the evil day will come. And in preparation for that, Roman soldiers would use what they called hobnails. And they would drive these nails down through the soles of their sandals so that, sort of like cleats today, it's the same idea as cleats, so that they could dig in and they could stand their ground in the battle, hold their position. Up home, in Maine where I'm from, we talk about studded snow tires, but you know, kind of loses something in the translation when you live in Oklahoma, but at anyway. Josephus described a Roman soldier's shoes as being thickly studded with sharp nails. These gave good grip to the ground no matter the terrain as they marched or fought. In fact, historians have credited the success of the armies of Alexander the Great as well as Julius Caesar in large measure to their footwear in comparison to their opponents because they had these, these nails driven through their shoes that would help them to hold their ground. The key is preparation. The key for this segment is preparation. Being able to hold your ground and standing firm in the battles of life that are sure to come is not a mistake. It's something you must be prepared for. One way that we can do that in our marriages is to determine to be the most selfless, sacrificial, and, and devoted Christian spouse that we can be and that the Lord commanded us to be. The other is to help our spouse or to have a spouse who is just as devoted, just as committed, just as unselfish, and just as sacrificial as the Lord commanded as well. It takes two. Standing back to back with that armor of God on in order to have the victory. Steve Blackman in an old bulletin from 2002, this was 15 years ago, related the account of how he had been in Dr. West's New Testament Bible class in the mid to late 1970s. Dr. West was teaching from Matthew 19 and Romans 7 and began talking about the marriage and home and relating some of those stories that he had lived through and he told this story. He said, once a young college girl came to my Bible office at David Lipscomb College. Dr. West, she asked, 
My boyfriend Robert has asked me to marry him. Do you think I should? No, indeed I do not, I replied. The young lady was shocked and asked why I said no. I said, recently you and your friend Robert ate at my table in the college dining room. Yes, she recalled, I remember that meal. You and Robert were the last two given the chicken platter. There were only two pieces of chicken left on the platter, a breast and a wing. He took the breast piece for himself and gave you the wing, I recalled. For that reason, because he chose the best for himself and the worst for you, I don't believe you should marry him. On more than one occasion, that same Christian woman has thanked me for pointing out what marriage is all about. Sacrifice. It kept her from making the mistake of her life. Proverbs 13 and verse 10 is a reference that we mentioned earlier, which says, By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. This young lady was well-advised. But sometimes, despite the best of advice, the best of intentions, sometimes despite the best of godly wisdom, still sometimes young people in their pride don't take all of God's wisdom, don't use all of God's wisdom. You know, when we first get married, when we first get married, you're putting together two worlds. I want you to think about this. You're putting together two worlds. You have different families. You have different backgrounds. You have different percep I can say that word. You have different perspectives. And so sometimes when you first get married, it's like two porcupines trying to back into the same hole at the same time. It, it, that's, that's kind of what it's like. And so when that happens, you need to be prepared you need to have prepared ahead of time and been prepared by the gospel of peace. Please open your Bibles to James chapter 3. We see a good illustration of this in God's Word from James chapter 3. Preparing ahead of time with the gospel of peace because you belong to the God of peace. James 3 and verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Here comes that godly wisdom. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have been bitter envy and self-seeking, like Robert in our little story, in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. When you have one who is so devoted to themselves and so full of themselves, there's no room for the other person. You're going to find all kinds of, of evil. You're going to find all kinds of confusion and, and bad things. But, verse 17, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. Notice that word peaceable. Gospel of peace, preparation. Gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. 
Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Question we each need to ask ourselves objectively as a marriage partner. It's not talking about your spouse, but again, as I spoke in an earlier session about what, it, what, what part of the problem am I responsible for and what can I do to fix it, we each need to ask ourselves objectively, am I gentle? Am I willing to yield? Now, I'm not talking about willing to yield when somebody is, is biblically off base. That's not what I'm talking about. With our husbands and wives, do we have an attitude of being willing to yield? Full of mercy. Would our spouse say that we are merciful, willing to yield, full of good fruit? You see, as we study God's word and we prepare for our marriages, and we keep preparing in our marriages... Having our feet shod with the gospel of peace means becoming that Christian selfless person that God wants us to be. To be peacemakers, to be people whose first impulse is toward peace. Jesus Christ is called the Prince of Peace in the scriptures. And it is those who are his who are the best prepared to be the least prideful and to be the peacemakers when problems arise. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 9. Like their Lord and Savior, these Christian spouses, when they are reviled, do not revile in return. When they suffer, they do not threaten. But they commit themselves to their righteous Creator and continue to do good, despite their spouse's weaknesses, failures, and sometimes less than godly words and actions. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, through chapter 3, and verse 17. We talk about those who are prepared with the gospel of peace. We're talking about children of the living God who understand that they have been and are being trained and prepared by the worst of times. The worst of times that God allows them to go through, they understand that that's just training ground. That's training ground in order to learn how to exhibit God's love and God's care and God's patience and God's forgiveness. Listen, how many of you in this room want to love like Jesus Christ? How many of you in this room want to forgive like Jesus Christ? Think about what you just said you want. The only way you can love like Christ is to be put in a situation where it's not a good situation. It hurts. You see, we can't learn to love like Jesus until we've been hurt. We can't learn to forgive like Jesus until we've been hurt by somebody. That's the only time we can learn to forgive. Otherwise, there's nothing to forgive. And so Christians who are prepared with the gospel of peace are those who understand that the trials they've been through before and the hurtful things they've had to endure before is just training ground to train them to learn how to be more Christ-like. That's what it means to have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. These people know, for example, that true love and godly peace results in and comes from making the first move when wrong. I want to spend a minute here. I want you to think about that. True love and godly peace results in and comes from making the first move when wrong. Making the first move to make peace. 
We've already talked about Matthew 18 and verse 15. If your brother sins against you, what does it say? Go to him privately. What is he saying? If your brother has sinned against you, make it a priority to get over there and fix it. Be a peacemaker. Go to him. Make the first move. Isn't that what God did for us? Open with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. I had just had this one down as a reference I would mention. You could look up later, but I, I really want us to go there. Romans chapter 5. Verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace. Remember, feet shod with the gospel of peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have peace. How did God make peace? How did God, once mankind had sinned, once, the, once there was this separation between God and mankind, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, once there was this separation and man was kicked out of paradise, how did God make peace? Tell you how. Verse 6. God made the first move. For when we were still without strength... In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 8. God made peace by making the first move even when mankind was still doing hurtful things. We were still sinning. God made the first move to make it right. Think about it. He did what it took, despite our failures, our shortcomings, and our weaknesses. That's what peacemakers do. Just like their Lord and Savior said and did, these people sincerely pray for those who persecute them instead of plotting their revenge. Peacemakers, those who are prepared with the gospel of peace. When your spouse hurts you, do you pray for them? That needs to be one of the things that's done right off the bat. What did Jesus say when he was headed to the cross in Luke 23, 34? Father, please forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's easy to stand back and say, well, my spouse knew. Um, seems to me I heard earlier this morning that our fight is not against flesh and blood, that our fight is not against our spouse, because we know Satan is ultimately behind all the evil, and that he's using our spouse, and that our spouse has said something in a moment of weakness or whatever, but Satan is the ultimate foe, and I need to stand back to back with my spouse when they say something to fight off the one who's really to blame, or it's going to keep going. That's, that's the key here. That's what peacemakers do. This is why it is so critical if we want... The most peace in our marriages that we can possibly have, that we are both prepared to be the most committed Christian spouses we can possibly be. We all know that in this life, it's going to be a war. All through our married life, we are going to battle. We are going to battle with the fiery darts. By the way, that was a terrific skit. We're going to battle with the fiery darts of sin. We're going to battle with Satan. We're going to battle with sickness. We're going to battle with temptation. We're going to battle with pride. We're going to battle with the aging process or the death of a loved one early. We're going to battle with finances, with children, with frustrations, with attitudes, with circumstances and situations that are way beyond our mortal control. Some of you may be dealing with some of those things even as you sit here today. We're going to be in a battle as a couple with all of those things. We are going to get beat up. 
We are going to get beat down. And we are going to get beat senseless in this battle. Some of the temptations... Some of the temptations may even be strong enough to tempt us to sever our relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know Christians who have given up on following the Lord? Some of those battles, they lost. And it is going to be then, when we face all of those temptations and all of those struggles that I just mentioned, that we are going to need the peace and the harmony and the unity and the support that only two people standing back to back in the same armor with the same goals fighting for one another, covering one another's back, can bring. Otherwise, there's going to be a pretty good chance that we will never have or not have the gospel of peace that God intended. We will not have the peace that God intended. I'm sorry. And our homes, if we don't have that peace, and if we're not standing together, if we're not prepared to dig in with God's Word and with a spouse who's committed to the same thing, if we're not prepared to dig in and fight at that point, then our home can quickly become a battlefield. Battlefield in a war that most Christians, according to statistics, will eventually lose. I know that all of us here are, are married, and I understand that, and most of us have been very blessed. I believe probably all of us have strong Christian spouses, but in this current context, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the following. Ole Olson's a brother down in Texas, and he sends me emails now and then, and this is one that he sent me. As we talk about that battle that Christians can lose... He sent me this email a while ago. It says, Most likely we all know of those we love that have departed from the Lord's church to worship within a denomination or not at all. This occasion appears in many or most instances when one marries outside the faith. When a member of the Lord's church marries, the member, marries a member of a denomination, salvation decisions must be made on the very first Sunday morning. I would say those needed to be made probably even before that, but certainly by then. Those decisions include, will they both go to worship together at the Lord's Church or attend the spouse's denomination? Or will they both stay at home? Or will he or she attend the worship of the Lord's Church by themselves while the spouse attends his or her denomination? Or, if the New Testament Christian was not soundly grounded in the one faith of Christ's one church, will he or she relent thus to then attend the spouse's denomination in order to achieve the serenity of a truce? Then he says this, Marrying someone who is not a New Testament Christian will most likely cause much heartache. A survey shows that 7 out of 10 who marry a non-Christian will eventually leave the Lord's church and only 1 in 6 will convert their spouse. Why do you bring that up where we're all married to Christians and we've been married maybe some of us for decades? Here's why. Because I want you to think about the war in that house. I want you to think of the lack of peace. I want you to think about the story I told you last year where we used to live in Maine and in the wintertime we didn't have any company because it was several hundred feet uphill and it was snowy and icy and if you didn't have a four-wheel drive you couldn't come visit us in the winter because you needed both axles pulling in the same direction at the same time toward the same goal in order to get there. Remember that story for those of you that were here? 
So why do I tell this to you this morning? Because of his closing paragraph. We should desire to admonish our children and grandchildren to marry New Testament Christians. We are to bring our children up in the training and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. How can this be accomplished in a religiously divided home? Parents who both are faithful Christians can have a greater influence on their children than if only one is a Christian. It is very confusing to a child if one of his parents is a Christian and the other a member of a denomination. Which one will the child follow? Which one will have a greater influence on him or her? The church or the denomination? Will the children of this marriage be saved or lost because of this divided influence? I bring this up to you this morning because we're talking about being prepared with the gospel of peace. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace and when we are both one with Him, when we are both devoted to Him, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand Him. A three-fold three, three cord is not quickly broken. Both of us pulling together with God is a three-fold cord. I cannot tell you how many times and places I've heard those stories about the carnage caused when one spouse is pulling in this direction and one spouse is pulling in this direction spiritually. We could go on for hours. I won't, but we could. And you know, it's not just the younger. It's not just younger folks. I know of a case where an older man, man older than me, it, really, they exist, man older than me, lost his spouse, both Christian. And he went out and married this lady who's a staunch member of a denomination. Would you care to guess the percentage of time that he eventually wound up spending in the Lord's Church on Sunday mornings? You know, as we get older and our spouses, sometimes, sometimes our spouses pass away. We can been married 30, 40, 50, 60 years. They pass away. Older Christians need to be very, very careful God told us in 1 Corinthians 7.39 that if our spouse dies, we need to marry in the faith. And one of the temptations that Satan can use is to get us to step outside of this. And you know, sometimes it's not even a non-Christian issue. Sometimes we can be married to a Christian who started well, everything was, was going well, but they got so beat down by life. They got so beat up by life. They, so much tribulation, so much persecution because of the word, or they got distracted by the world's pursuits. And they just got dragged down. What do you do then? What do you do when your spouse just gets so burnt out and tired they just want to give up and quit? What do you do then? What do you do in a situation where you're already married to either a non-Christian, a selfish Christian, or a slipping Christian? What does God's Word say you do then? God's Word tells us to stay to pray, and to be prepared to be the absolute best Christian example we can be. We are called to peace. After all, what better influence, what stronger tool can God use than a faithful, devoted, strong Christian spouse to reach a struggling Christian spouse? to reach the kids. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. Actually, I know of one of those 
Remember I said one, only one in six will convert their spouse? Actually, I know of two of those who did. These, these are in the minority, but they're great. I, I know a lady who went to def, different churches for years, bounced around trying to find something that was biblical, finally wound up at the Lord's Church. Her husband didn't want anything to do with religion. And over the course of years, he not only became a Christian, he became a very qualified elder in the Lord's Church. She went for years, dragged those kids off the church for years by herself. Sometimes... Sometimes it does work, but she stayed. She was the example she needed to be. We have a beautiful story in Cleveland. We have a lady over there that is just this most wonderful, awesome, faithful Christian lady. And she had been married to a man for 50 years who wasn't a Christian, and he became one a few years ago. And it was just, and it was her example. Just the most beautiful thing. But she stayed, and she was the best example she could be. She was a peacemaker. You know, why not item one item of preparation that would go a long ways in helping to ensure that Christians, whether they're young teenagers, 20-somethings, or 70-year-olds who lose their spouse, have more peace in their marriages and stand more firmly in Christ and defend one another when those battles come. One thing that would help that immensely is to realize, really realize, where true beauty comes from. Real beauty comes from. Beauty is not what the world says it is. The world and God have two diametrically opposed definitions of beauty, just like they do love, as we talked about last night. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7 says, Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The most beautiful women in the world, some of the most out of this world, amazingly beautiful women in the world, are right here today. They're not on the cover of some magazine. They're not on Hollywood coming out of their 28th marriage. Not on some cover of a magazine coming off their, their 28th marriage. Some of these women in these hair commercials and stuff, their beauty is outward. And there's nothing wrong with having a beautiful spouse, physically. But we need to understand that according to God's definition, true beauty is not outward. True beauty is inward. And that would help those, those spouses that lose their Christian mate after 30 or 40 or 50 years. And it would help our young people, it would help so many people if we understood where true beauty comes from. I'm going to show you true beauty. I'm going to show you some stunning beauty. All of you ladies who are Christians, please stand up. Yep, I said it. All of you ladies who are Christians, please stand up. Please remain standing until I conclude. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Strength and honor are her clothing. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also. And he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. 
Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. You are looking at some of the most beautiful women on the planet. It is those women who have a heart after God. Ladies, go ahead and be seated. Arming your marriage for the battlefield by shodding your feet with the preparation of the gospel peace means this. Being the best, most faithful, most selfless, most devoted, and prepared Christian spouse, male or female, that you can be. That's where true beauty and true strength lies. Always putting yourself on the line in order to strengthen and to comfort and to protect and to forgive and to faithfully fight the battle with your beloved in the power of God and in his full battle armor. And I will close this session as I've closed others. Maybe some of you here haven't been all of that. Your marriage can be so much more beautiful if you haven't been all of that. If you'll simply today say, you know what? I am going to rededicate and redevote myself to being the best Christian I can be and the best Christian spouse. My spouse deserves it. That's what it means to have your feet shod with the gospel of peace. The gospel is about surrender to the will of God. And there is nothing more beautiful than those who have done so and have that peace in their marriage.